The recent Tokyo Olympic Games have been a showcase of extraordinary talent. They featured athletes such as Naomi Osaka, Yanis Antetokounmpo, Ira Brown, Lamont Marcel Jacobs, Rui Hachimura, Abdul Hakim Sani Brown, and Stephanie Mawuli, who have challenged our conventional notions of nationality. Hi, I'm Milton Allen Turner, and this week I'm discussing what is nationality, why this concept can be so important to many, and why it can seem so threatening to others. Welcome to this week's episode of Worldviews. The Tokyo Olympic Games have recently ended, and in many ways, this Olympiad was unlike any other. Besides the difficulties of competing during a pandemic, I was struck by two aspects of this year's games. The first was that for the second time, there was a refugee Olympic team. In Rio in 2016, there were 10 athletes who participated on the refugee team. This year, there were 29 athletes who were able to participate. As the International Olympic Committee stated, they sent, quote, a powerful message of solidarity and hope to the world that this summer, bringing further awareness to the plight of over 80 million displaced people worldwide, unquote. The second aspect that stood out to me was the fact that this year's games were not just multinational, as would be expected, but they were also multiracial. This was symbolized by the prominence of tennis star Naomi Osaka. As National Public Radio's Leila Fadl noted, Osaka is, quote, a mixed-race Japanese icon and the face of the Tokyo Games who lit the cauldron during the opening ceremony, unquote. Fadl pointed out that Osaka's image could be found on posters all across Tokyo with the word new in English and the words generation or world in Japanese. She was one of many athletes challenging our conventional ideas of nationality and identity. Fadl highlighted Ira Brown, a black man born in Texas who is now a Japanese citizen who played for the Japanese national team. Brown was one of many Japanese Olympians redefining what it means to be Japanese. On the five-on-five basketball team was Washington Wizard player Ruri Hachimura, whose mother is Japanese and whose father is from Benin. There was also the sprinter Abdul Hapkin Sani Brown, whose mother is Japanese and whose father is Ghanaian. On the three-on-three women's basketball team, there was Stephanie Mawuli, whose parents emigrated to Japan from Ghana. Ira Brown said, quote, I feel like we're breaking barriers, especially with how they treat mixed kids before, especially when I first got over here. When Naomi Osaka and Ruri started having a lot of success, and all of a sudden, the narrative started changing, unquote. This multiracial aspect was not just confined to the Japanese Olympic team. There is perhaps most famously NBA superstar and MVP Yanis Antetokounmpo, born in Greece to Nigerian parents who played for the Greek national team. 
There was also the Italian Olympic team that featured sprinter Lamont Marcel Jacobs, who won the 100 meters. According to the Italian Olympic Committee, 46 of Italy's 381 Olympic athletes who competed in Tokyo were born abroad. But not everyone seems happy with this show of multiracialism and multinationalism. According to a recent story in Le Monde, Yanis and his brother Thanasis have been called chimpanzees and monkeys by Greek political leaders and sports commentators. At a sports complex where a young Yanis used to play that currently sports his own image has been vandalized with xenophobic graffiti. Ryan Mack and Tariq Panya of the New York Times noted the increased harassment black soccer players in the United Kingdom have been receiving on Facebook since the European Championship in July. Mack and Panja reported that, quote, three of England's black players were subjected to torrents of racial epithets on social media for missing penalty kicks in the final game's decisive shootout, unquote. 17-year-old pole vaulting champion Greta Nachi, who was born to Nigerian parents in Turin, has broken records and earned a junior title. But her performances are not recognized by the Italian state because Greta is not Italian in the eyes of the law. And as a result, she could not compete for Italy. Unlike many countries in Europe, Italy grants citizenship based on blood ties rather than where children are born. Children born in Italy to foreign parents must await their 18th birthdays before applying for citizenship. This concept is known as jus sanguinis, or citizenship by blood. The concept of granting citizenship to children born in a country is known as jus soli, or citizenship by soil, or citizenship by birth. At this point, it may be helpful to distinguish between a few related ideas. Nationality is used to refer to the place or country where one is born. Citizenship is the political status one acquires within a state by either birth or naturalization. Ethnicity refers to the cultural traits shared by a group of people such as race, ancestry, religion, culture, or language. Nationality can have a chosen component as well as a biological component, jus sanguinis, or a geographical component, jus soli. Most countries allow for naturalized citizenship or the ability to choose to be a citizen regardless of blood or place of birth. There's even a concept of citizenship known as use doni, or citizenship by investment, by which one can become naturalized by basically purchasing or buying citizenship via a substantial economic donation or investment in the host country. Tiger Woods is the son of an African-American man and a Thai woman. When I traveled to Thailand in 2002, his image was everywhere. Thais were proud to call Tiger one of their own because Tiger proudly considered himself to be one of their own. 
Tiger did not define himself as just black. He famously described himself to Oprah Winfrey as Cablanasian, Caucasian, black, Indian, and Asian. He rejected a binary either or definition of, of nationality or identity and embraced all of his multiracial heritage. If an athlete can claim dual citizenship, he or she can only compete for one of those countries and must choose between them. In some cases, athletes have competed in different Olympiads for different countries. Brandon Wiggins wrote for the Business Insider that Jasmine Fenlater Victorian was part of the U.S. women's bobsled team in the Sochi Olympics in 2014, but in 2015, she switched her allegiance to Jamaica in hopes of inspiring more girls and children of color to take up the sport. And she's not the first Olympian to change teams. A South Korean speed skater named An Hyun Soo not only switched to compete for Russia, but even legally changed her name. Obviously, citizenship laws differ from country to country. Fenlater Victorian was able to compete for Jamaica because her father is Jamaican, unquote. According to the Olympic Charter Rules 40 through 41, any competitor in the Olympic Games must be a national of the country of the NOC, which is entering such a competitor. A competitor who is a national of two or more countries at the same time may represent either one of them as he or she may elect. However, after having represented one country in the Olympic Games, in continental or regional games, or in a world or regional championship recognized by the relevant IF, the athlete may not represent another country unless under very specific circumstances. All matters to the determination of the country which a competitor may represent in the Olympic Games must be resolved by the International Olympic Committee's executive board. Nationality, like race, religion, or money, is a social construct. Or in other words, as Max Fisher, Josh Keller, May Ryan, and Shane O'Neill summarized in their 2018 video for the New York Times, nationality or national identity is made up. Max Fisher calls national identity, quote, the myth that built the modern world, unquote. Instead of identifying with a smaller group, like a family or a clan, through nationality, people now identify and feel an affiliation for a much larger group of essentially strangers. Fisher explains that the idea of nation or country was created in the 19th century by combining the ideas of language plus race plus borders. Fisher argues that a new kind of national identity was created in the United States in the 20th century that was not based on this construct of language, race, and borders, not based on jus sanguinis or jus soli, but rather on an idea. But the idea that being American is indeed about race, religion, or language is indeed based on blood or soil, 
also runs deep. This is compounded by the fact that to reinforce the idea or the myth of national identity, a contrast is often needed. An other must be created, identified, and often vilified or demonized in order to complete the myth. This is particularly evident in difficult times. As Fisher notes, quote, when we feel threatened, it makes us want to humiliate and dominate the outsider, unquote. Americans prefer to think that nationality is only tied to an idea, with the 14th Amendment affirming the concept of jus soli, birthright citizenship. Immigrants can become naturalized citizens, regardless of their ancestry or place of birth. The Washington Post's Adam Taylor reported, quote, it turns out, for example, that most Americans don't believe that where someone is born really defines whether they can be American or not. In fact, only a handful of countries, Pew surveyed, thought that it was important. And while America is a country well known for its talk of values in God, most Americans don't think that customs of religion are really important to being an American. And neither do most other countries. Taylor stated that the survey found that language, rather than birthplace, was the most important aspect of nationality. Taylor said, quote, Pew's study found that in every country its researchers looked at, language was what really bound its national identity. The highest result was found in the Netherlands, where more than 84% of the population believes it's vital to speak Dutch if you want to truly be Dutch. But in all countries, a majority said that it was, quote, very important, unquote, to speak the national language. Social constructs can have reality. Race may be a social construct and may not have a biological basis, but that it's not prevented people from using it to privilege some and to discriminate against others. Money is a social construct, but having it or not having it has direct and tangible effects on our lives. Nationality and religion have no biological basis, but nations have been waging wars over these ideas for millennia. Abstract ideas can have concrete effects on the world. Yuval Noah Harari, in his book Sapiens, discusses social constructs as, quote, imagined orders. And he argues that these imagined orders are embedded on the material world. Harari argues, quote, thus, modern belief in individuality is reflected in modern houses' divisions into individual bedrooms for each child where they can maintain privacy. This was never true in medieval times, unquote. Ideas affect reality, which in turn reinforce and maintain these ideas. As much as we may want to try to divorce race or blood 
from the idea of nationality. Even in the U.S., we still uphold the traditional European concept of jus sanguinis, citizenship by blood, by granting citizenship to anyone born of at least one American parent. Even though race is a relatively new construct, the concept of nation is much older and often expressed very similar ideas. Jack Foley wrote in his essay, Multiculturalism and the Media, quote, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first appearance in print of the word white, meaning a white man, or a person of race distinguished by a light complexion, was in 1671. The second was in 1726. Earl Conrad wrote in his book, The Invention of the Negro, quote, through the centuries of the slave trade, the word race was rarely, if ever, used. Shakespeare's Shylock used the word tribe or nation, but not race. The Moor in Othello calls himself black and the word slave several times, but race is not used. The word race does not appear in the King James Version of the Bible in any context other than as running a race. The Bible refers to nations. A simple trip to the grocery store can show how strong and pervasive the ideas of race and nation are. Priya Krishna observed recently in the New York Times in an article entitled, Why Do American Grocery Stores Still Have an Ethnic Aisle? For many grocery stores, a wholesale elimination of the ethnic aisle may not be easy or even that popular. In some ways, the ethnic aisle sums up the predicament of its suppliers, many of whom approach store buyers without the money often needed to get their products on the shelves. Corporations like Pepsi and Nestle can afford to pay stores handsomely to ensure their products get prime placement on shelves and a presence in promotions. Some companies break out of the ethnic aisle only when they're acquired by larger companies. Others, like Goya and Maruchan Ramen, are broadly recognizable, encouraging placement in both ethnic and other sections. Krishna quoted Errol Schweitzer, who is the vice president of grocery at Whole Foods Markets from 2009 to 2016, said the ethnic aisle is part of a, quote, legacy of white supremacy and colonialism, unquote, built into the framework of the grocery business, starting with the low wages paid to hourly workers who are often people of color and the lack of diversity among store buyers. Schweizer said he and other employees frequently talked about eliminating the ethnic aisle at Whole Foods, but they couldn't persuade the company to make such a major overhaul. Krishna added, This month, the partners started the New American Table, a coalition of investors and entrepreneurs of color that will meet regularly with store buyers and brokers to make the case for a more inclusive grocery business. There are plenty of examples they can point to, 
In January, Sprout Stores started selling various Mexican cookies from Siete Foods in the cookie aisle. They quickly became the best-selling cookies there, according to a July report from Spins, a data technology company. Krishna concludes, Adnan Durrani, founder of Saffron Road, said his pre-made sauces like Thai red curry and tikka masala sell significantly better when incorporated with all other sauces. It helps, he added, that he has Americanized the names of some dishes. Alu matar became deli potatoes. Dal makani became Bombay lentils. And yet, that is precisely why some purveyors want their products to remain in the ethnic aisle. They don't want to dilute their food's identities in an effort to sell to a wide audience. The opening ceremonies of each Olympic Games begins with a parade of each country's athletes entering the stadium under their individual's flags behind their flag bearers. However, this is a sharp contrast with the closing ceremony where the athletes enter en masse and in no particular order. According to the organizers of the Tokyo Games, quote, the idea of having all the athletes parade in no order comes from a young Chinese man, John Ian Wing, an apprentice carpenter in Australia for the 1956 Games in Melbourne. As National Public Radio's Bill Chappelle reported, with the 1956 Melbourne Games threatened by disarray, John Ian Wing, a 17-year-old Australian of Chinese descent, wrote to organizers with his idea for how to end the Olympics peacefully. The goal for the final parade, Wing said in his letter to Olympic officials, should be for the athletes to walk together as, quote, only one nation, unquote. The closing ceremony is a wonderful metaphor for what we often wish to attain, a powerful recognition and celebration of our solidarity and commonality, regardless of blood or soil. But unfortunately, this is often just an aspirational dream. Most of our lives are still ruled by the principle of Jus Sanguinis, ruled by blood. Even our grocery stores. I'm still waiting for the day when adobo, ramen, and tikka masala are no longer confined to the ethnic food aisle. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more worldview.